Welcome to Ingest, the podcast series designed for primary care clinicians and brought to you by the Primary Care Society of Gastroenterology. I'm Dr. Charlie Andrews, a GP in Somerset and also a GP with an extended role in gastroenterology at the Royal United Hospital in Bath. Today's episode is a patient experience episode where we're going to be talking to patients who have a condition to try to understand what it's like to be diagnosed with and to live with a condition. And the condition that we're going to be talking about today is achalasia. So let's just start off with a bit of a discussion around what achalasia is. So achalasia is a neurodegenerative condition of the esophagus and the cause is largely unknown. However, what is known is that the myenteric plexus, the nerves supplying the esophagus, and obviously importantly the lower esophageal sphincter, are damaged and destroyed. And this can lead to loss of relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter, and also impaired or even absent peristalsis. It's a very rare condition affecting about 1 in 100,000 people, and it can occur at any age. However, the commonest ages for it to develop are between the ages of 30 and 40. The key symptom of achalasia is dysphagia, and this is generally of insidious or gradual onset. Patients can also describe regurgitation of food, heartburn, and in more severe situations, they can also suffer from malnutrition and weight loss. In terms of investigations, endoscopy is generally the first investigation that's carried out in order to rule out structural causes of dysphagia, such as esophageal cancer. However, often this will appear fairly normal in patients with achalasia. However, other imaging modalities can be helpful, such as contrast studies, i.e. a barium swallow, which could show that classical beak-like appearance of the low esophageal sphincter or a dilated esophagus. However, the gold standard for making the diagnosis of achalasia is using manometry, which is pressure testing of the esophagus and lower esophageal sphincter. And it looks at how this alters when you try to swallow food. And in someone with achalasia, what you'll generally find is that the lower esophageal sphincter fails to relax when it should do in response to ingesting food. And there is poorly coordinated or even absent absent peristalsis within the esophagus. In terms of treatment, this can be divided into pharmacological So in some situations, calcium channel blockers and nitrates can be used to help. Botox injections into the lower esophageal sphincter to relax that tight junction that people develop. And more invasive procedures, such as balloon or pneumatic dilatation of the lower esophageal sphincter, Heller's myotomy, which can be done open or laparoscopically, and a more recent innovation called POEM, P-O-E-M, standing for peroral endoscopic myotomy. As I suspect you've gathered from the treatment options I've described there, the target of treatment is that tight lower esophageal sphincter to try to help people with those symptoms of dysphagia. So with that bit of background information, let's get into the episode and have a listen to Jane and Andrew's story of their experience of achalasia. So I'm joined by Jane and Andrew today, who both have achalasia, and I'm really excited to hear about their stories. I always think that it's so helpful for us as GPs to understand the patient experience, 
Um, and so I'm going to ask Jane to talk a bit about how she was diagnosed with achalasia, um, perhaps some of the things we could learn as GPs about that process and about what it's like to have achalasia. Okay, hello. Um, yeah, I was diagnosed about 10 years ago with achalasia. Um, I started having problems probably about two or three years before that um, with food getting stuck when I swallowed the food and um, saw my GP. Um, the GP sent me very promptly for a gastroscopy. Um, probably got seen quicker than some patients do. Um, but I think his initial thing was, you know, checking for a blockage, a tumour or whatever. And when I went for the gastroscopy, I was told everything was fine, all clear, and um, discharged. But I think I was kept on by the gastroenterology team there, and um, they followed me up a couple of years later when I was still having problems. And at that point, the doctors, the consultant who did the gastroscopy, suspected achalasia and referred me for a manometry, which is the main uh, means of diagnosing achalasia. And just, sorry, to stop you there, because our, our, our audience may not know exactly what manometry is, but that's pressure testing within the esophagus. Um, that's right, yes. It's a, not a, the most pleasant of tests. It involves putting a tube up your nose and down into your stomach and testing the, um, the pressure and it tests for contractions in the esophagus. Um, so it can confirm whether you've got any um, contractions um, because in, in uh, echalasia there's an absence of the of peristalsis, so the contractions are not happening to push the food down. So that's when I was diagnosed from the manometry. And um, the other test that um, is carried out to confirm echalasia is a barium swallow. And that's the other test that is done and shows that you've got the, got the um, esophagus that it's a sort of a enlarged esophagus and a, and a restricted lower esophageal sphincter. Um, so, yeah, that was my story. Since then, I've been followed up uh, regularly and had um, gastro gastroscopies every couple of two or three years, but I haven't had any treatment as such, um, been offered dilations, and uh, I'm currently on the um, surgeon's list at King's College for a possible intervention called a POEM. At the moment, uh, my thinking is that I'm just going to monitor it, manage it from diet, etc., and um, try and keep going without any surgical intervention, but it may be that the time will come when I'll, I'll have to consider that. And so what, um, what symptoms do you get with your achalasia? So it's mainly problems in, with the food not clearing through the esophagus. So the food tends to, because it's, there's no peristalsis, so there's no muscle contractions pushing the food down, and the lower sphincter doesn't relax to let the food into the stomach, the food is reliant on gravity getting into the stomach, so the food gets stuck and it can come back up sometimes, so you can get regurgitation. Um, over the years I've learned to manage it so that I don't get such severe symptoms like that, but you know, the common symptoms are regurgitation, severe chest pains, muscular spasms, um, and people, I mean, people who suffer worse than I do can lose huge amounts of weight very quickly and then surgical intervention becomes totally necessary at that point. Um, fortunately for me, I haven't got to that point yet where, I, where it's essential, but it can cause a lot of problems in your day-to-day -day life. You know, um, eating socially and that sort of thing can become difficult. Um, but with advice from the Achalasia Action Society, um, 
I've, man- I've learned to manage the condition through diet and um, other interventions that um, make make it livable with mm. on a day to day basis. And how do, what do you do? How do you adapt your diet? And what sort of things do you find can help your condition? So um, it's important to avoid stress. A lot of ankylosing patients um, talk about stress, and I think it definitely is a huge factor. I think I've I've retired a couple of years ago and I've definitely been better since, since I've retired with less stress. Um, but also diet is the main thing for me. Um, you have to avoid certain things that you know don't agree with you. And there's a lot of common factors in your patients on what they can't eat, things like bread, things, anything that is quite solid or will form a, a very um, solid ball when it's going down. Um, so dry chicken bread, pasta, rice, those sort of things are the things that a lot of patients talk about. And I, need, I find I need to drink a lot of liquid with my, when I'm eating, so a lot of um, warm water helps to wash, wash things down, because it's basically you're reliant, as I say, on gravity and the mechanics of the food going down, um, so you, you might have to stand up and walk around and that sort of thing. Thank you. And now I'm going to talk to Andrew about his experience of, um, of achalasia and how he was diagnosed. So, Andrew, could you tell me how you were diagnosed? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, not too dissimilar to what Jane was just talking about. I, um, the kind of symptoms that I had uh, were mostly roughly about 5 a.m. every morning I'd wake up with really intense pain just right behind my sternum, kind of just at the lower part of the sternum. I'm not sure what you would call that. I mean, really intense, intense enough to, to wake me up almost like an alarm clock, pretty much every day for, for a long time. And much like uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of men, I was kind of putting off going to the doctor about that. My wife was complaining, saying, you really got to go, you really got to go. <clears throat> anyway, so I eventually went and the doctor was, uh, my GP was, I wouldn't say dismissive, but was kind of like, well, you know, you really should give up coffee and mm. chocolate and think about exercising more and that kind of stuff. I'm so thinking, thinking about sort of reflux more than, yeah. than anything else. Yeah, and I was like, I'm sure it's definitely far more than just <laughs> just eating, drinking the wrong things. And then by chance, I went back uh, about six months, maybe a year later, and uh, uh, they weren't available. I saw a, a temporary doctor, temporary GP. Mm. So a, lo- a locum, a, a locum. GP. Yeah. Uh, and they said, actually, we want to send you off for some tests. You're going to go off for a... Gastroscopy. Gastroscopy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a manometry. So I was like, okay, I'm not sure what they are. So I looked those up and curious to find out what that is. And to be fair, I was quickly sent in and um, checked out a local hospital. And the manometry test came back saying that, yes, you've got achalasia. So I saw a surgeon again within about a week or so. And he said, um, he said you know, the only option available to you is surgery. Uh, and I was like, I'm sure there's something more that mm. I could probably do. I could try and look to manage this. It can't mm. just suddenly be surgery straight off the bat. Uh, and that's where I found uh, found a group of people who were suffering from achalasia. Um, joined them, and since then we've started up a charity called Achalasia Action. Um, and we're providing more and more information to, to anyone who may be suffering or having the same kind of symptoms that we'd previously had. Uh, to give them some guidance around how to get diagnosed and what, what they can do about it. One of the other um, key symptoms I had, as well as the pain waking me up at first thing in the morning, um, was that I wake up 
um, choking, where food that I food and drink I'd had the night before, the day before, um, because I was lying flat in bed, was um, and it wasn't going into my stomach. It was then suddenly just reappearing. Mm. So I'd wake up choking, rush off to the toilet, and that wouldn't be very pleasant. Um, and so I learned to kind of not eat and drink past a certain time, and that was kind of just a learning process. Mm. Um, and then it all, you know, all, all the thing, all the pieces of the puzzle came together when it was started diagnosed with achalasia, as to say, actually, it's because food and drink wasn't going in, then you should, like, for myself, I started not eating, drinking past a certain time of the evening so that I could give the food and drink time to get into the stomach versus wait there and, um, and potentially cause some problems with aspiration later on. Mm. I also now sleep with a, a lot of pillows, mm. a lot of pillows, so I'm kind of well yeah. propped up. Um, I tried a, a wedgie pillow, this big mm -hmm. kind of wedgie piece of sponge, um, and I just wasn't comfortable enough. I kind of start developing a really bad back. <laughs> so, so actually just using lots of soft pillows and being, being elevated that really, has really helped. Amazing, yeah, and, and so how, how does it affect you now? Well, again, like Jane, I haven't actually had any, any um, intervention at all, so, mm -hmm. so I'm managing it myself through, through diet. Yeah. I mentioned about how I don't eat past a certain time, and that, yeah. that, that varies based on what I've eaten during the day. Um, I tried for a long time switching my, um, switching my, what you might call a main meal, main meals aren't as big as the main meals I would have previously had, to be more around lunchtime and a, a smaller mm -hmm. meal, a lighter meal after that in the, in the evening. And that's so I could still have food um, and dinner with the family. Um, <clears throat> so switching those around, managing what I eat, avoiding foods that I know are going to cause me problems. So something like minced beef is for me mm -hmm. is just a real problem. However, if I can, if I can have a minute steak, that works really well. Um, don't ask me why. There's a big difference. Uh, lamb mince is is okay. Okay. Uh, mashed potatoes, pretty so almost what you might call a geriatric type <laughs> diet. And have you had help from a dietitian about this as well? Or we were just talking about that, we, weren't we? we, we, we just now that it's very difficult to get referred to a dietitian. It is very difficult. We there really asked. aren't very many around, is it? But I it was really, like... I was really fortunate. I did get to okay. get to see a dietitian. Yeah. And they were really pragmatic about it. They were saying, mm. well, do you know what? If you're going to have calories, may as well have the calories that you, um, that you enjoy. So she was kind of advocating you know, things like gin and tonics, what have you. Um, <laughs> not that I have many of those. <laughs> but she was, she was really good fun to talk to. And, mm -hmm. and it really was, actually, here are some foods that you should go and make sure you get, make sure mm -hmm. you get the right balance and get the right nutrition. And that's helped me make sure that I'm like, um, just making up the right kind of foods for myself. A lot of what you've talked about in terms of how you manage it, it sounds like you've adapted your routine, you've adapted your diet, um, so there's a lot of things that you've done to, to manage the condition and it sounds like you're doing a good job of that from what you're saying to me, it sounds like you're, yeah. you're keeping those symptoms under control. I, I, I think so and, and one of the other things I'm sure Jane you've probably found the same is I, I've told friends and family about, about the um, about the condition and they've been really good so going over when we were mm. able to mm. perhaps before covid and just after um when we were able to go and see each other we we've been i've been really supported by friends and family who've been able to make sure that there's something mm. soft so they'll ask beforehand we're doing this for yeah. food is that going to be okay i'll say yes or no or could you add this in and that'll be okay so so it's not just that 
personally, it's also mm. the people around us who I think also need some, mm. some support. It must be hard eating out and things, I'd have thought, and sort of trying to make the right choices about... Yeah. yeah. I always look at the menu before I go out, if that work is online, look <laughs> mm. what I'm going to have, mm. if I can yeah. find something that I can eat. And often I don't have any, but I often elect for the child-sized portion. They <laughs> go out as well. Yeah. Uh, I've only had one place where they've said, no, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, seriously, that, that's all I really can or yeah. want to eat. And they were like, no, no, you have to have that. So I was like, okay, fine. I imagine when you say, I've got a Kalazi, they probably look at you and have no idea. <laughs> Clueless. Clueless. I'm not, yeah. it, it is an unusual condition and it's, you know, probably poorly understood. And, and actually, you know, talking as a GP, I probably could think on one hand the number of patients I've got in, or I've seen with achalasia is not common. Mm. Um, so I imagine, yes, eating out it must be a challenge. And do you take any medications at all? No. No, I did take PPIs for mm. a, a number of years because I think, um, as we were saying before, the GP originally thought it was more mm. of a reflex problem. Mm-hmm. In fact, the gastroenterologist, I think, initially prescribed PPIs and saying that the problem was mostly reflux mm. um, before achalasia was diagnosed. But I stayed on those PPIs for quite a number of years mm. until I read various things um, that put me off them a little bit and um, I came off them and mm. I was no worse without them than mm. I was with them. So I'm not sure if they helped in the short term, maybe they did in the short term, but I think mm. as a long-term solution, they're not yeah. the best thing to say on Friday. Yeah, I was always prescribed PPIs. Um, I actually found that my uh, my symptoms became more profound after I started taking them, wow. which okay. was really peculiar. Mm. Um, and asking the GP at the time, how long do people take these for? And the answer was for some time, which was kind of an open-ended potentially for for life. Um, really helped me just to stop and think about actually, I need to need to also not be on you know. A pill a day or two pills a day for mm. however long, uh, and the potential associated um, uh, secondary problems you can get with with those. Yeah. Um, so that's why that also helped me elect to, to just perhaps change some of the uh, some of the approach and not necessarily have surgery because even after surgery, I think you still have to take PPIs. Yeah, it's one of the things that's put me off having surgery actually. The, the fact that you can get more problems with reflux afterwards. Mm. It sort of swings around about trying mm. to balance up when and if to have a, an intervention done, isn't it, really? Mm, sure. Um, keeping an eye on it and making sure you're not doing more damage to yourself because by not having anything done um, yeah. is where I am at the moment and I think Andrew's probably similar. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's been really interesting. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I just want to finish this episode by thanking Jane and Andrew for sharing their story today. As I mentioned before, I really think it's so helpful when we as GPs could get a bit of an insight into what it's like to have a condition, particularly one that's very unusual like achalasia, but clearly has a huge impact on all aspects of, uh, of, of patients' lives. I apologise for the echoey sound quality during this episode. I met Jane and Andrew at the annual scientific meeting for the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology in London in November and felt that the opportunity was too good to miss to speak to them. Uh, Unfortunately though, the room that we used was very echoey, um, so that does come across in the recording. All that's left for me to say now is thank you very much for listening today and I do hope that you join us for our next episode.